You're listening to Sidious Playground, a podcast by Leadership Foundations. I'm Rick Enlow, and I get to be the host while I ask interesting and fascinating, I hope, <laughs> questions to uh, to Dave Hillis, president of Leadership Foundations. How are you doing, Dave? I'm doing great, Rick. You know, this has been um, actually an interesting time. It's it's It was March last year that we all started uh, trying to figure out how to uh, speak um on our computers to each other instead of across the table. So uh, that's, it's pretty amazing uh, time span. And uh, yeah, I think uh, it's caused me to, to miss being around the table, but I think we're getting better at, um, you know, at this computer thing as well. So uh, we're in a, uh, a series. In fact, uh, this is the fifth episode of what we're calling traditioned innovation. And of course, uh, well, let's start right there. Just Give me a, a quick definition of, you know, or what's underneath traditioned innovation, and then we'll talk about uh, this this episode. Yeah, it, you know, the, I mean, the general idea, Rick, is that, um, you know, probably more than ever uh, in this 21st century COVID reality that we're walking through, uh, you know, there's no map um, for it. And so we need to be innovative, right? We need to be kind of poking our eyes and ears around the corner to kind of look at what might be coming next and being able to, again, not be reactive, but be responsive. I think one of the great resources that we have in order to be innovative um, is actually the rich history of the church, our our 2000 years. Um, And so that's the general idea, Rick, is that, you know, let's, let's, yes, be innovative. Yes, let's pivot. Let's zig, let's zag. But let's mm-hmm. probably do that with an eye toward what has happened in the past. You know, what were the Augustines, the Aquinases, uh, the Azusa Pacific, you know, uh, street revivals? What, what were they about and what can we glean from them and kind of almost bring them forward? Yeah. And it's been true, actually, in my view, that uh, Leadership Foundations has done that a long time before this series, <laughs> but uh, it is a great thing to kind of, you know, get our arms around. Mm-hmm. But I think that, you know, uh, if we think about the, just the Ignatian way and things that, you know, um, that have been sort of uh, retooled and, and applied to where we're at now, I've already seen that so much. But today we want to talk about a very interesting, I think, applicable to everybody. It could be that some of our podcasts would be, um, somebody would say, okay, then I'm just going to move on because, you know, I'm not relating, but I can't imagine anybody that doesn't relate to the yeah. idea of a courageous conversation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it gets, I think it gets to the heart of, of something we've talked about before, Rick, which was <clears throat> that Jesus, when you watch him uh, in the Gospels, um, perhaps the most radical thing that he does uh, is essentially set tables, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if you were to kind of almost kind of have a clicker and count all the times the Pharisees, the authorities uh, got mad, uh, you know, began to plot against him. It was almost always in keeping with he had sat at the table with sinners. Um, mm-hmm. And so implicit, I think, in the table, of course, uh, is conversation, right? I mean, the, the table yeah. is defined uh, by that conversation. So it's been, I think, again, very interesting for LF. Uh, and particularly with with Jim Bailey, who we will have a conversation with, um, to talk about what is the shape of that uh, conversation uh, that takes place at the table uh, that LF is trying to sit set in in, in cities around the world. Um, you know, I uh, and oftentimes think about this. And part of the thing I love about the Gospels, Rick, is that the Gospels will lift up what I would describe as a little bit of a prototype. 
for that courageous conversation. Um, and of course, it's none other than old first church himself, Peter. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that's remarkable about watching kind of the arc of Peter uh, in both the Gospels, uh, as well as the way that it moves then into the book of Acts, <clears throat> is that he's really the person who always has uh, that courageous conversation. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, some of them turn out well, um, like in the case when you know they are in Caesarea Philippi, uh, a long ways away from the holy city of Jerusalem. And Jesus decides to have a courageous conversation where he says, uh, you know, who do people say that I am? Mm -hmm. You know, some different thoughts are thrown out, but it's Peter who, of course, says, well, you're you're the Christ. And uh, and it's there, of course, that uh, Jesus famously um, says, uh, you know, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter. I'm going to build upon you my my church. Uh, that same courageous conversation now, just a few verses later, has Jesus saying to him, get behind me, Satan, um, because, of course, it's Peter that tries to deter him from moving to the cross. Yeah. So time and time again, what I think we get in the person of Peter um, is, is just this marvelous sort of example uh, of what it means to, you know, again, be at the table uh, and to have the kind of courageous conversation that I think, uh, you know, we all need. Um, yeah. If we're going to well, move into I think, these Dave, good one spaces. of the things that's amazing, amazing about the the record we have in Scripture of some of those conversations is that if you were writing um, to make somebody, uh, you know, to impress people, I mean, you would leave out the get behind me Satan parts, you know, but it's so honest. <laughs> it's right. like there are some things that are so profound, you know, like I I think you're you're Christ, you know, you're the son of God. And totally. like he makes this amazing confession. Right. But then yeah. he also just says crazy stuff. Like I was reading uh, uh, yesterday the, the Transfiguration, um, you know, which is mm-hmm. pretty amazing, like account. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and it says that, uh, you know, there's Elijah and Moses. And then as soon as. Peter uh, speaks up and says, we should, you know, build a theme park, you know, and, and then, <laughs> then I don't, and then, then in the text, it says he didn't know what he was talking about. It was like, he just, you know, exactly. he had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah no, that's but I, exactly think, I think those are, those are um, examples that, you know, that help us see that, you know, um, it, it is when we um, have a chance to understand the dynamics of the table yeah. that we build the table wherever we're at. You know? Yeah, no, that's right. And I, and I yeah. you know, I think to extend that, Rick, real quickly, you know, there's of course the episode that takes place with Peter and Jesus now post-resurrection, and of course this is after Jesus uh, or that Peter, you know, classically denies him three times. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus comes to Peter and says, "Now, do you love me three times?" And so he restores yeah. him. Um, one of the things that I, I've loved about Catholic theology is, at least on their best days. The notion of uh, Peter being the first pope is true to the degree that he represents for us uh, that which has been redeemed. So in other words, as opposed to all of the bells and whistles that is oftentimes attached to the pope's office, um, it's actually uh, the opposite, right? Um, Here's the Mm -hmm. one that is most the poster child for what it means to turn one's back on Jesus and still be used uh, going forward. And then the last yeah. picture of Peter that I love uh, is actually in Acts 10. Um, you know, and this is where the gospel now is beginning to, you know, bump up against the uh, the limits of the Jewish reality. 
Um, and, you know, the gospel wants to get out beyond it, but it has to go through Peter. And so famously, mm-hmm. right, he falls asleep. He has a dream. You know, he's supposed to go and eat. Uh, Peter, again, in a kind of curious way, says, well, nothing has ever, you know, passed my lips that has been unclean. Um, has a bit of this conversion. And out of it, um, <clears throat> what happens, of course, is that the gospel effectively gets freed up uh, to yeah. you know go to to Gentiles, and I think one of the things I would just say about courageous conversations is that's what's at stake, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's not just Rick and Dave having a hard conversation about politics; it's actually having hard conversations in such a way that it actually then creates more generative space for more people, right, to come to the table. I think that's why that's why Martin Buber, you know, the famous uh, philosopher, Jewish philosopher, in his book *I and Thou*, said, "You know, all real living is in the meeting," um, mm-hmm. which I think again is, you know, it is when we encounter each other, we have these conversations. Uh, that that's where real living is taking place, because if it is the courageous conversation, we hope it to be. Uh, then there will be more people sitting at the table the next time around. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I that reminded me of this uh, privilege I had, which was I went, got to go to Israel once, and um, and you know, you fly over there, and then you wake up the next morning, and it's you don't know what time it is, and you know, it's just mm-hmm. incredible. So our very first place we went, they just get us in this bus, we're getting out, and then we're all of a sudden we're standing there. You know, I mean, twelve hours earlier, you know, we're in SeaTac Airport, and now I'm standing in front of a house that says Simon the Tanner. You know, wow, and like it's, yeah. this guide, you this guide you've never met before is telling you stuff, and you know, I'm kind of thinking, yeah, you know, I kind of teach the Bible, you know, on the weekends <laughs> and stuff, you know, like that. And the guy does this whole thing about where he says he explains to us, you know, that uh, for someone, you know, non-Jewish to enter, you know, a home that was Jewish, um, you know, would mess the whole thing up. But, you know, it's the whole That's defiled, right. unclean thing. And anyway, so he, then he says, you know, uh, and what the scripture says is that, it, you know, he opened it. He said, you know, hey, come on in. And then he talks about Peter having that same, you know, attitude when suddenly, you know, he has to enter. And so it's, yep. he, he's, he talks about opening the door and he, and the whole group of us, uh, like accepted Christ, you know, I mean, like we, it was like our first morning, but all of a sudden <laughs> it was like this very real thing. But I think that there's a, yeah. a component to opening the door um, yep. to someone who you think, okay, maybe, you know, I kind of think their ideas are a little bit um, on the defiled end of the, you know, the spectrum, but like you yep. open the door and then everything changes. Totally. You know? And I think that was like a pretty cool takeaway. Yep. Well, listen Absolutely. on this, uh, this particular series is um, matches some of the others because we're talking about this counterintuitive, uh, counterintuitive aspect of leadership, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that we are kind of in this binary universe thing where everybody's like, are you this or that? Are you black or green? Whatever. Yeah. But uh, remind our listeners kind of how it's important that we hold uh, more, you know, we don't side, but we hold to sit at the table. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, there's a, what I would describe it, Rick, is it's almost kind of a commonsensical reality to the table. That's the beauty of it. Um, and I think, you know, the notion, you know, historically is that the table was a place that you could show up 
and begin to figure out, you know, what it is that you think um, that you could be stretched, you could be challenged. Um, the uh, you know the kind of conversation that that could take place would begin to proceed, and that's a very different, I think, than the way people are now viewing the table, right? Which is to effectively stand at the you know door of the table and see if the person passes the you know spiritual you know uh, lie detector test or the political yeah. lie detector test. I mean, wh- whatever it is, yeah. we grade each other out on and. Only if you can kind of get through that are you allowed at the table, which of course uh, is a, as far removed as you can be, you know, from a courageous conversation. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. become a, a safe conversation. You know, one that um, <clears throat> you know is only going to confirm, you know, bias. Um, it'll probably have the net result of having us double down on you know whatever it is that we have already, you know, intuitively uh, uh, believed about, you know, the world, about the president, about, you know, yeah. you know, religion. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's the whole idea is, is to, to get to that table um, and, and to actually be open to a, you know, a conversation that uh, will yeah. stretch you, that will challenge you, um, that will maybe comfort you at some level. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I know my, um, there's a sense in which I've been at uh, some get togethers where uh, I heard somebody say something that I thought was really smart. He goes, now, listen, this is more of a senatorial get together than a congressional get together, you know, and people were like, what? He was just saying Mm. that we're not trying to represent, you know, our ideas here. We're just trying to, you know, like reason together, you know? Mm -hmm. And so he had a kind of a a way to describe it that way, but I thought that was helpful. Now, you know, in, in terms of, um, being courageous in our conversations, um, there is this element of courage, <laughs> you know, that that's an important element. And, yeah. uh, uh, and I think, uh, our former, one of our former guests, I was reading, um, you know, Richard Beck's, uh, uh, stranger God. And it said, he talked about how, you know, the root word for kindness is kin. And we mm-hmm. tend to, you know, migrate toward, you know, sort of, you know, those closest to us, uh, talk about the c- courage it takes to, uh, to, you know, actually sit comfortably with uh, someone who's not just a stranger in the sense that we don't know them, but they're actually strange. <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's a good question. You know, um, I, I, maybe I'd, I'd answer that, Rick, at, at, at two levels. Um, I think one is that it initially starts uh, with ourself in kind of uh, what I would describe as a, a deep, you know, sort of, you know, reflection. Um, I mean, I'm on my best days, if I'm transparent and honest, um, aware that um, I, I've got a number of things uh, happening in me and through me that are uh, a bit bipolar themselves, right? That, mm-hmm. that find themselves at odds. Um, and so I think to you know effectively acknowledge that um and yeah. i think you know one of the things i say time and time again is that i i sit at tables not as a result of what i want to believe i sit at tables with which is reason but i sit at tables uh by way of my relationality right mm-hmm. i'm i am a, a product of of people that i've interfaced with throughout my life uh, throughout my day and so i'm in a I'm going to acknowledge that as best as I can 
um, which I think actually helps me then become a bit more courageous at the table. In other words, yeah. this is not this is not a zero sum argument about you know is this body politic right or is this body politic right? But it actually allows mm-hmm. me to begin to look around the table and say we all sit here, you know, as a result of this relationality. Um, how about talking about that, um, mm-hmm. right? That then yeah. maybe moves us, I think, to a kind of quote unquote, you know, courageous conversation. Yeah. You know, the the second piece that I would just say, Rick, is that, and I've said this, you know, many times to people. I think the the issue is never the issue, um, and I, I just cannot tell you how many times I've thought the issue is fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. Um, when the real issue is my kid uh, just got sentenced to, you know, two years in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife is, um, you know, uh, mentally ill. Um, yeah. I've just lost a job. And if, if we can discipline ourselves, right, to not, again, to use the James Allison phrase, not be reactive to, you know, the presenting issue, get to the issue underneath the issue yeah i mean it's it's a it's really it's pretty breathtaking I am I am one of those people, right, who had uh, a son that was, uh, you know, given up uh, 19 months in prison, and uh, it was mm-hmm. just this heart wrenching, horrific thing. I mean, we're still, you know, kind of limping through that. Yeah. But I remember talking with Jordan and saying, Jordan, uh, can I, with your permission, um, as I go into a lot of different quote unquote tables, talk about that, because it is such a large part of my life in both all of the horrific rays, right? I mean, just stuff that's kind of textbook, but also in these remarkably redemptive ways. I mean, things mm-hmm. I've learned about myself, about him the whole bit. So of course, Jordan, yeah. his wonderful way, gave me permission. I can't tell you <clears throat> how many times I would be sitting, quote unquote, at the table, um, and I would say, you know, hey, everybody, yeah, in the midst of you know politics and religion, the whole bit, I, I actually have a son in prison. And to watch what would happen in the conversation. Yeah. Um, there would be this almost hush. Yeah. Um, and then slowly what you would begin to watch is people qua- you know, almost crawling out, right, of these uh self-built kind of you know, protective realities. Say, you know, actually, you know, I spent some time in prison or, Mm -hmm. you know, I've got, you know, a son or a daughter that committed suicide. I mean, you know, whatever it might be. And and again, the goal here is not to kind of walk down a, you know, kind of hall of horrors, uh, but rather, right, to say that's where all of us are living, you know, truth be told. And I think that was one of the remarkable things about Jesus is that he was able to get to that issue right beneath the issue um, and mm-hmm. a kind of authenticity, a kind of courageous conversation takes place. Yeah, totally. You know, uh, Dave, I have a friend who's uh, been, he's uh, kind of in charge of the, what we would call the child protective services in San Diego County. 
Mm. And uh, he's the guy who goes into a, you know, a home and decides whether, you know, the kids are going to have to be placed in custody. And, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. there's usually a, a lot of different things going on. And uh, one of the things is he doesn't carry a weapon. Um, and even though he has authority and, uh, you know, and I asked him, it seems like a hard job. And he said, the only thing he does that he's learned is just to look around and say, um, I, I could see myself right here. Right. I could see myself right here if I had, you know, and he, that's how he talks to people like, Hey, listen, I could see myself right here if I've gone through what you guys have gone through. And absolutely. It, and they're thinking he's going to come in at the, uh, you know, gun out, you totally. know, everybody on the floor. And that's he right. said, it just, it, I think that's courage. See, that's the courageous conversation. And, uh, yep. and I think that, um, that's what we want to focus on today. And we're so thankful for Noah's interview coming up in a second. And mm-hmm. one of the things though, that's great about the table though, Dave is, um, you know, some people would say, well, wh- where in the Bible does it say anything about your iPhone 12, you know, or whatever, you know, trying to, <laughs> trying to like, <laughs> you know, sort of challenge the relevancy, you know, of the, yeah. of, of the, the scriptures, but we still have the table. That's right. You know what I mean, the, that's right. You know, the, some of the bells and whistles or whatever, you know, the little things there's change, obviously, you know, we live in a different era, but the table yeah. is still at the center of what's going on. It's incredible. It absolutely yeah. is. Yep. Yeah. And so that is a way, I mean, that is a tradition and, and yet you we're go. Uh, seeing mm-hmm. the innovation of it um, as it's, it's applied to different contexts, especially through the local leadership foundations around the world. Mm. Well, um, how, can you tell me, what can you tell me about our guest today before our, um, our genius roving reporter, Noah Basket comes in? You know, Reverend Jen Bailey is a, uh, relatively new to leadership foundations i think uh noah will let's say a bit more about her uh on on the interview but uh mm-hmm. she was recommended to us uh, via one of our very good friends and partners dan cardinelli uh, dan who of course uh, heads up independent sector has been a, a wonderful resource to leadership foundations and in the course of talking with dan about our town halls um we just said hey dan who are some of the you know brightest um, sharpest uh, theological minds out there. And I mean, at the very top of the list was the Reverend Jen Bailey. Um, one of the things about Jen that's a little bit breathtaking is that when you read her resume uh, before you meet her, you got to go, really? I mean, she's 154 years old. Um, <laughs> I mean, what she's accomplished uh, in her roughly, I think, 33 years or something like that uh, is is just extraordinary. So, um, it's, uh, Jen's been great to get to know. Um, she, uh, lives in Nashville, uh, Tennessee, uh, where among other things, what she is doing is she's put her hand to actually trying to, and here's a wonderful tradition to innovation is grabbing a hold of the old idea of chaplaincy, um, mm-hmm. and then moving it forward. Uh, into spaces that have not traditionally been able to or have been afforded uh, what it means to have a chaplain. So she'll, mm-hmm. I think, talk about that with uh, with Noah. Um, she's also created these uh, dinner tables um, that have, have been really fun to kind of listen to. Um, and, and again, it's a place where she is exercising this idea of courageous uh, conversation. That's great. Well, we're thankful that she uh, is available, and we're looking forward to hearing what uh, what Noah has to to say in their conversation. Let's check it out. Wonderful. 
Hi, my name is Reverend Jen Bailey, and I'm the founder and executive director of Faith Matters Network. And I'm so honored and excited to be in conversation today. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jen. Really appreciate you uh, joining the City's Playground podcast. And maybe just to start off with, if you could say a little something about um, what the Faith Matters Network is, um, uh, how uh, kind of you helped lead to its founding, how did that come about? Sure. Faith Matters Network is a womanist-led organization, meaning that we are rooted and grounded in a spiritual lineage that is shaped by the wisdom, experience, and faith of Black women. And so, so much of our work and who we see ourselves in in the world builds from a legacy of activism and organizing grounded in the Southern Freedom Movement or what folks popularly know as the civil rights movement and those quiet leaders, folks like Ella Baker, Rosemary Freedy Harding and others, those women who were marching in Montgomery who may not be known to the history books in the same way as the Martin Luther Kings and others, but who through the very lived practice of their faith and their experience really were the foot soldiers of that movement. And Faith Matters Network, what we do is we work with faith leaders, community organizers, and activists, helping them and equipping them with tools for our three core values, connection, spiritual sustainability, and accompaniment. And for us, we believe that the work of social change and social justice, social equity, really begins by placing care at the cornerstone of our movements for social transformation and change. Meaning that so often in this work, and you probably know this being leaders yourself, leaders are the first ones to get burnt up, <laughs> to get used up, to get to pour out and pour out and pour out of themselves, but rarely are they poured into. And so we really take it as a mandate to heal the healers or invest in those folks who are on the front lines of social change, helping them see themselves as part of this work over the course of their lifetimes um, and helping them pace themselves in the work of social change. So many of the problems that we have have taken generations to to get us to. And so we believe that in the narrative and sort of mantra of collective care, that if we want to stay in this work over the course of our lifetimes, we know that rest and rhythms of rest and care have to be a part of that. Absolutely. It's funny. You, I think uh, I heard this was in your, in the uh, interview that you had with Krista Tippett in the On Being podcast, but I think you, uh, you touch base on this idea that when you're talking about social change work, you're talking about the long haul, right? Mm-hmm. The long arc of history and how many of us involved in social activism, social change, uh, we want to see, we want to see change. Uh, uh, we want to see it happen quickly. Um, this idea that we're talking about the work of generations, um, that is a different mindset. Um, and I wonder, maybe you could say a little bit more about the people, the communities, the organizations that you're serving through uh, Faith Matters Network. Do you recognize a a receptivity for this kind of ministry around actually uh, slowing down and taking care of self? Is there resistance? What what have you experienced there? Sure. I'm often fond of saying that I'm grateful to be a minister in the AME Church and a minister of the gospel because it opens my mind to think in terms of eternities and not election cycles. And I think so often in our work for social change, um, there's a temptation to view everything as urgent. 
And the challenge there um, is that when everything is urgent, nothing is urgent. And it makes it so much more difficult for us to actually prioritize that which is most pressing before us. Yeah. And so as I think about even the founding of Faith Matters Network back in 2014, I had spent the first part of my career in the food justice movement, organizing and advocating for increased benefits like SNAP, formerly known as the Food Stamp Program, and other federal nutrition programs because I was working with people who were hungry um, and didn't have enough to food to feed their families, particularly in the wake of the Great Recession of 2008. And I saw the ways in which so many people I was working alongside and organizing alongside people who were working with those who were unhoused, people who were just combating intergenerational poverty through their organizing work, so often felt depleted and so often felt used up um, and that nobody was truly investing in their well-being as they were investing in the well-being of others. And so I think that there is a habit among those of us who find ourselves in vocations that are oriented towards help and care for others to embrace almost this weird sense of activist martyr syndrome, right? That we believe, um, for those of us who belong to the Christian tradition, that we take a little bit too seriously that mandate to take up our cross and believe mm. that we ourselves need to be Jesus and in in all of the fullness of his ministry, including the, the crucifixion part. <laughs> and so, you know, I think as I have been so honored to walk alongside elders and folks who are younger, who are coming behind me, Gen Zers, I've seen an increased receptivity, particularly among millennials and Gen Zers, um, towards this notion of collective care within movement spaces, many of them who've been uh, radicalized, and I use that term not just to refer to politics, but I know the etymology of the word radical is rooted. So these are young people who are deeply rooted in a notion of justice and a notion of love and peace. And most of um, the folks I'm interacting with, that these radical um, organizers are very much thinking through and have seen the ways in which violence has been inflicted upon them and organizing spaces as they've resisted um, white supremacy, as they've worked on issues of racial inequity and justice. Mm -hmm. And and they've seen the way that unprocessed, that trauma can lead to them beginning to take out that trauma on one another. And so they begin to replicate the same patterns of harm that they're fighting against. And so over the past five or six years, there's been a proliferation of new, I, I mean, I see Faith Matters Network as part of an ecosystem of work that has risen up to say, you know what? No, we're not going to repeat the same harms of the past of using people up and leaving them to dry. Um, we believe in investing in the holistic care and well-being of the folks who are doing this work because we need them for this vision we have of collective liberation and the creation of something new out of the, the chaos and catastrophe that we've seen happening globally. And so it's been interesting, too, to sit at the feet of elders who maybe didn't have language for this need previously. Mm -hmm. And who very much perhaps bought into in that season of their work, this need to always be going, 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 doing, doing, doing. And what I've heard in those conversations is folks say to me, 
you know, I wish that I had taken or I thought that I had had the permission to take moment a moment to pause and breathe. I might still be in movement work if that was the case. And so I, I do think that there's an emerging recognition and acknowledgement of both the need for these type of spaces and an honoring of those folks for whom the work of care has always been central to the way that they participate in movements. I'm thinking about like, yeah. you know, the church mothers who are making the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, <laughs> right? The people who've been caring for people for a very long time, but whose labor has gone unrecognized. Now, in your description of this uh, care and encouraging self-care of the social and spiritual activists of the world, Jen, tell me a little bit more about this notion of movement chaplaincy. Can you say a little bit about that? Absolutely, sure. Uh, Shout-outs to my dear colleagues, Mickey Scott Bay Jones and Hilary Allen, who co-lead our Daring Compassion Movement Chaplaincy Project at Faith Matters Network. And the Daring Compassion Movement Chaplaincy Project really emerged out of this observation of what we've been talking about, that over the past several years, there has been um, this sort of wellspring of activism and new people coming into movement, and that so often um, there haven't been people who've had a pulse on or been paying attention to the holistic well-being and needs. And so We have really, through the Daring Compassion Movement Chaplaincy Project, been a part of a growing ecosystem of work that is attending to this new emerging vocational role that is called, that we are calling the Movement Chaplain. Um, I think if I was sitting here with Hillary and Mickey, who are deeply, I mean, they're the embodiment of traditioned folks (laughs) who do tradition innovation, they would probably trace their lineage back decades to Mm. those folks in the kitchen who are making food for protesters in the civil rights movement, right? Mm -hmm. Movement chaplains offer accompaniment, and we define accompaniment as spiritual, emotional, relational, and practical holistic care to those in social change movements. And that includes individuals, organizations, or they sometimes show up at direct actions and protest as well. But the role of the movement chaplain really is to be, um, in my observation, that vibe check, that person who has an eye towards how folks are doing. Um, there's those who, you know, whose attention is sometimes on organizing the march or, and there are those folks who, um, whose eyes are on communication strategy for specific campaigns, but the movement chaplain really pulls from the well of their own traditions. And one of the things that I've observed in watching this project blossom is the number of people from across different faith traditions who've expressed interest in this vocation, who've seen themselves in the description, who've taken our course, and we offer twice a year a Daring Compassion Movement Chaplaincy training course that's 12 weeks. And what's interesting about the way that Hillary and Mickey have constructed the course is that it begins really by people examining their own lineage, their own spiritual lineages, and thinking about, so what is the tradition of care and accompaniment within Christianity or your particular strain of Christianity? What is that within the the Jewish practice that you practice? And starting as that that as sort of the reservoir from which we pull the very practices that are most relevant and how we understand healing. And then from there, um, 
practicing some of those very concrete skills that so many chaplains for generations have practiced about being present with those in the midst of suffering, being present with and hearing and absorbing and being attuned to folks who are in moments of peaks and valleys, moments of crisis and um, delight and celebration. And so I've been really moved by both those folks who've graduated from that program, who have begun to start movement chaplaincy crews and networks in places like Philadelphia and the Twin Cities. Um, and by work here, I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and our Nashville Movement Chaplaincy crew has begun doing things like hosting activist brunches <laughs> that where <laughs> we just love up on people and invite them to brunch and care for them. I know the Philadelphia Movement Chaplaincy Squad that has emerged um, out of our networks has begun offer, uh, sending out activist care packages just to say, I think they were calling them like revolutionary love care packages, just to say that we see you, we honor you, yeah. um, and we love you. And I've been struck by and hearing reports back of people who've received those packages, how much just a word of affirmation, a box with, you know, a poem and some simple activities, some coloring sheets, some, um, you know, a candle, right, can mm. make people feel remembered because this work can be deeply isolating if we let it be. You know, as somebody who <laughs> was shaped and identified early to be a part of what I've like come to call like the leader industrial complex. And it exists in all sectors. It exists in the church. It exists in business, right? You identify young people very early on mm. that have quote unquote qualities of leadership that are recognizable. Mm. Um, that may be a certain type of charisma, right? Mm. Um, and you put them on this pipeline um, to achieve the, the rules, um, the executive director roles or the fellowships or the scholarships that become a part of sort of this elite class. And, you know, I name it because I was a part of it, right? Like I was <laughs> identified very young as like, you are going to be a leader in the church. And I was like, okay, mm. <laughs> you know, but that set aside and left behind, I think, a way of seeing and acknowledging. And I think about some of my you know, the kids I grew up with at Bethel AME Church in Quincy, Illinois, who weren't capital L leaders, but who their their own quiet gifts were exercising and showing um, examples of leadership from the beginning, right? It just doesn't, it didn't take the form of that, which we saw as recognizable, quote unquote, leadership. And so I think from the very beginning of our ethos at Faith Matters Network, we very much wanted to uplift those I wouldn't even call them quiet leaders, right? They always had a voice. They were already always present doing the work. It's just that their labor was not recognized as being mm -hmm. valuable in the same way as, say, in the context of, you know, the church I grew up in, the church mother in the kitchen who was feeding the multitude was not seen as a capital L leader in the same way that a clergy person was. Yeah. And so I think part of what we're speaking to in the words of the great Ella Baker is that notion that strong people don't need strong leaders, that there is within each of us a spark, I believe, of the divine that calls us towards healing and repairing the world. And, and thus, it is our responsibility to pay attention to and 
the ways in which leadership manifests differently depending on who who is leading. Um, and so I would, you know, I would talk about it sometimes as like the democratization of leadership or, yeah. and I would argue the democratization of spiritual leadership, that some of the greatest and deepest teachers that I've had have not been clergy folks, but have been lay leaders in the church context who were doing and toiling quietly and um, actively to help, you know, families get food that needed food to help families, you know, move in with them when they didn't yeah. have any place else to live. Yeah, Jen, that's really good. Hey, uh, could you just share a little bit about um, uh, people's supper, uh, this this notion that you described around cultivating a mutual sense of belonging? Where did that come from? Um, what was its kind of genesis? Sure. So the people's supper really started on a journey on I-40 between Nashville and Little Rock, Arkansas. About a week and a half after the 2016 presidential election, um, and as I was through West Tennessee into the Arkansas side of things on the other side of the Mississippi River en route to do some work in Little Rock at a small college there, Philander Smith College that I've been working with, I drove through my grandmother's hometown of Hughes, Arkansas, and I thought about this legend in my family. Um, my great-grandfather, who's called Papa, left Hughes fleeing the KKK because he was registering Black folks to vote in the 1940s and 50s. And as I was listening to some of the rhetoric emerging out of the election cycle in 2016, and just the hatred and vitriol with which people were talking to and about one another, I thought about that story and I thought about just the deep fear and palatable sense of grief that was just present um, across different ideologies and traditions. Um, and so I called my friend Lennon Flowers, who's one of my dear dear friends who runs an organization called The Dinner Party that works with 20 and 30-somethings who've experienced loss, usually the loss of a loved one. And I was like, I feel like our democracy is grieving right now. Mm -hmm. And what would it be like um, if we, alongside our colleague Emily May, who runs an organization called Hollow Back, if we experimented for 100 days, the first 100 days of the previous presidential administration, the Trump administration, and creating spaces for one people just to see one another as human again, because we've done this work of really becoming more and more polarized and demonizing the other. And, you know, that's only going to lead us down a path of mutually ensured destruction. And so we began to, to dream about what was at first called 100 Days, 100 Dinners, this and we hosted and thought about what would it look like to have these bridging conversations over a shared meal, which is a methodology that we adopted from the dinner party, but also healing conversations focused on communities that felt directly under threat, given the sort of context and social context in which we are part of. So a hundred days later, we'd hosted over a hundred suppers nationwide. And now, um, over four years later, we've hosted over 2,000 of those suppers. And I think for us, we begin with this mantra that's adopted from a quote by um, the writer Stephen Covey that says that, um, that change moves at the speed of relationships, or 
Relationships move at the speed of trust, but we argue that social change moves at the speed of relationships. And so, again, I'll say that again, that relationships move at the speed of trust, but social change moves at the speed of relationships. And that has been really the core mantra of our work at The People Suffer, that part of what we need to do as a country to heal, um, if we're about to be in the business of healing, is to first ask the question, um, in the words of one of our mentors, Mama Ruby Sales, where does it hurt in our communities? And then the second question being, what needs healing here? And over the past four plus years, we've been probing that question in places like Oak Ridge, Tennessee, the site of where the first atomic bomb was built, mm. <laughs> right? We've been asking that question in Erie, Pennsylvania, in a city that in 2017 was voted the worst place for African-Americans to live in the United States. We've been asking that question with educators in the greater Los Angeles area who believe um, very deeply in educating and caring for our children, but couldn't agree on strategy and didn't really like each other and saw themselves <laughs> as competitive. Um, we've been asking that question in Northern Virginia among a cohort of clergy in the aftermath of um, Governor Northam's sort of recovery of him in blackface, right? And asking real questions yeah. about what it means to wrestle with, with race from a perspective of faith. And the work hasn't been perfect, <laughs> but um, I think any work, that is worth doing is messy necessarily. But what we've found in grounding this concept of my colleague Mickey's called brave space rather than safe space mm -hmm. is that when we invite people into a space of vulnerability, invite people into a space that recognizes that we have all, in the words of a, the poem that she wrote, an invitation to brave space, we all carry scars and we've all caused wounds, that our, the spaces for our conversations aren't gonna be perfect, but it will be ours, that all of these um, principles and practices of not giving up on one another, but uh, leaning into our discomfort in some ways so that we can recognize our shared humility, our shared humility and humanity um, and hearing one another's stories and thus humanizing one another when we recognize that everybody has a story is a starting place. That is by no means the only, the only way that we repair the breach in our interpersonal relationships, but it is a start and I don't know about you, but at a time where it's easy to fall into despair, it's easy to like buckle down and be entrenched with a lot of folks who think like you do. Um, starting somewhere is a huge first step. <laughs> It sounds like that work is continuing to this day, even four years later. It is, it is. I'm so grateful for the labor of my, my colleagues, Kay Scary and London Flowers and others who've really taken up the mantle of the People Suffer work and continue to push and drive it forward and ask really important questions about what it means to invite people into a space to bridge divides in a season where it can be difficult to think about the gulfs between us. It can be difficult to wade into waters and conversations that are uncomfortable. And so deep bow of gratitude to, to them and to everybody who's doing the work of trying to have some difficult conversations in this season. Amen to that. <laughs> well, um, I wonder if you could maybe just say a couple words about uh, your upcoming book, Jen, 
um, to my beloved's letters on faith, race, and radical hope. Yeah, so it's it's fun. Um, this is a book that didn't want to get written. Like, <laughs> seriously, I've been working on it for like five years, and I was like, I don't even know if I have anything <laughs> to say <laughs> right now. Um, and to my beloved's is really an examination of the lineage of which I find myself a part of, um, which I talked about a little bit today, but that lineage of the church mother um, who really helped raise me and who through their example of leadership instilled within me this notion of radical hope. So these are women who survived the tyranny of the Jem and Jane Crow South. These are women who, um, in the language of the Black church tradition, made a way out of no way, and who, through their very, not just survival, but flourishing and thriving, served as sort of a counter-narrative to a popular understanding of Blackness and Black womanhood that would have us relegated to our suffering and struggling. Mm. Um, and so, in many ways, the this book is an exploration of those questions of what it means to embody radical hope in a season of such deep grief and loss and suffering in the world as we um, are still in the midst of a global pandemic that has, right. you know, taken millions of lives as we are sitting with the, in the United States, sort of continuing to rest and reckon with this racial uprising and reckoning around the, the deep wounds of our nation um, around issues of race. And so I really explore what I've identified as sort of three themes around radical hope that I learned from the church mothers. And I do it in the forms of letters, which may seem counterintuitive as a millennial because who writes letters anymore? <laughs> but I found it to be the, the most personal way um, for me to, to talk to folks. Um, and it's been a really deep gift to begin um, exploring what I would what I would say if I was talking to like my mama who passed away in 2016 or mm. my son Max who's six months old mm -hmm. uh, around these topics. And the three themes that have emerged as I was reflecting back on my experience and in particular um, one of the the mothers of my church at back home in Quincy, Illinois, um, Sister Catherine Weldon who passed away last month I think she was 92 years old, um, but was the first person who identified in a little six or seven year old me that I was going to preach one day, which mm. at the time I was like, what? <laughs> and I remember her, my mom telling the story of her saying, mark my words, that girl's going to preach one day. Uh, and thinking about sort of the prophetic proclamation of that um, and that tradition and those women who toiled in the kitchen and fed us all. And what they taught me about radical hope was really three things. The first um, was thinking about memory as an anecdote to death. And at a time where so many of us are living in both process and unprocessed grief um, and the death not only of individuals as a result of this global pandemic, but the death of institutions, the death of what we anticipated our lives being um, as the church changes, as 
financial systems collapse, right? Like, you know, I graduated from college in 2009 into the 2008 financial crisis. And so I'm very aware as a millennial of, of all of the things <laughs> right, that yeah. are collapsing. And there's something powerful that happens when we remember um, my husband is Jewish and walking alongside him and his tradition and the role of memory and that tradition has been really informative and shaping mm, to me because yeah. when we remember, we bring people back to life, right? When we remember, we attend to and honor those wounds that have been caused, but we also begin to transmute our grief. Um, we transmute our, our sorrow into our suffering, into moments of joy. I think about that scripture in Psalms that talks about turning your mourning into dancing, right? Yeah. It's only in the acknowledgement of those things that we can move forward. Um, the second is imagination as a path pathway to resurrection that um, in this season of so much being dim, I have like, if, I don't know, maybe it's because I have a baby, but I'm thinking differently about creativity and imagination every day. <laughs> and that actually, when we begin to like stretch the realm out of what we think is possible and lean into our make-believe childlike selves, we can start to, to imagine new systems being created and new ways of, of living being real. And the third thing is um, the act of living as a testament to the possibility of the present. So one thing that the church mothers did is live in the context mm. of a society that would have them dead, that would steal their hope and dream. And so I think about this in a lot in relationship to COVID-19, but as we face a, a disease that would steal our breath, and I reflect on the last words of Eric Gardner and uh, George Floyd being, I can't breathe, to remember that we are alive is an act of radical hope and resistance in this mm. season. Wow, Dave. Uh, mm -hmm. Like you said, 154-year-old uh, <laughs> voice. <laughs> and, you know, especially, uh, let's just kind of wander back into that idea of the safe space and what it can become yeah yeah you know i think there's a you know there's probably and i think jen talks about this a bit rick but there's a there's an instinct in all of us um you know when tough things surface um mm -hmm. you know you want to find that safe place um yeah and i i would argue that we don't want to minimize that. I I get the instinct of, of wanting to get safe because, you know, I've had some conversations, right, where it's like, woof, I'll, I'll never, you know, have that conversation again. Yeah. And while she acknowledges that, I think what she does a very good job of is say, but that's not sufficient. Um, and what, what needs, the safe is what needs to happen is it needs to migrate uh, to a brave space. Um, that still has, I think, you know, uh, safety attached to it, but it's exactly because of that safety that now we can begin to have the kind of conversation, ask the kind of question, uh, give the disciplined reflection to, um, some of the things that are taking place, whether it's race, you know, whether it's class, uh, whether it is, you know, uh, sexual orientation, um, and to do so in such a way, and I think she would say this, where um, 
somehow we've been able to figure out um, the most difficult thing of all to do, and that's suspend judgment. Um, you know, and I think to the degree that those of us, you know, around this world that are trying to help facilitate these brave spaces, um, I would I would say that the thing, the the most important ingredient is to figure out a way, I think, to communicate to everyone that that judgment has been suspended, uh, you know, in this space. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think that, um, you know, is a bit of what she talked about. And, and it was wonderful to hear her, you know, reflect on that. I think the other really notable thing, um, you know, with her, of course, and, and this is such a part of the LF DNA, is that change, um, at any level travels, you know, at the speed of relationship, mm-hmm. uh, and, and the trust that, that, you know, is garnered from that relationship, which of course, roughly translated means it's probably going to be on the slower end, uh, not the quicker end. Right. So I think in a very practical, you know, way, uh, this is why local leadership foundations embedded in communities, uh, built for the long haul are so critical because they become the very fulcrum by which now relationship, you know, can, you know, uh, move forward. And, Mm -hmm. and again, oftentimes it's slower than we would like, but ultimately if you have organizations like local leaders foundations that can help steward that relational, you know, process, you'll see real change take place. And that's, that's encouraging. Yeah, that is encouraging, especially because we sometimes get into the mindset that it's just, uh, uh, you know, just draft a new document, make a new policy, you know, wave your hand in the air. But like it's yeah. always at the table and that is absolutely uh, slow motion, but but it's the real thing. And it's, again, one of those things that hasn't changed. It's a, a tradition, you know, to be at the <laughs> table, but it's yeah. it, we innovated in the sense that where the table's set. And of course, some of us we now understand what it's like to eat, you know, like if we're going to have anybody over outdoors in the freezing cold, you know, mm-hmm. we've done that mm-hmm. in the Northwest, but uh, well, right. listen, what a great conversation and a, a tremendous guest. Thanks to Noah for that interview and you, Ben. And also uh, we want to wrap up our episode with a recommendation. We do that to see uh, who can kind of you know, lean into something, whether it's a, a media piece, uh, you know, practice, an idea, a film, uh, you know, and then, and we asked them for a recommendation that, would open our eyes to see the city more clearly as God sees the city uh, as a playground, not a, not a battleground. So mm-hmm. let's get a recommendation from Jen. Wonderful. So one of the things that I've been up to, um, there's been very little that we've taken the pandemic and lockdown very seriously in my household. But one thing that um, we have done is every Friday, my husband and I go out to lunch and try to try someplace like new or different. And so um I think about about food as a gateway to the city as a playground um, and discovering and uncovering hidden gems through the sense of the physical sense of taste. And so every week it's like a puzzle to try to figure out and look on, you know, Instagram and like, is there, a, there's a new secret ramen pop up here. Can we go here and try that? Is there, there's a, there's a food truck that's serving goat tacos here. I want to try that. And so uh, I've been really excited um, by the the ritual practice of pausing long enough um, to eat with my beloved. And, you know, we do it socially distance and we like wear our mask and we pick up food and then we go to a park, which is another thing that we love to do is like 
when the weather is nice, sit outside and enjoy and observe. Um, and people watch the many beautiful and different folks who who live in our city in Nashville, Tennessee. And so I would encourage folks as, as you're thinking about exploring your city as a playground, how to explore it through the realm of taste and and seeing restaurants and food as a way to maybe invite yourself into parts of the city that you otherwise wouldn't go. We've recently discovered a really delicious Uzbek restaurant in our in our city, and uh, and so yeah. And I did not grow up eating Uzbek food as a young black girl in Quincy, Illinois, and so so yeah. Uh, Follow some food trucks uh, on Instagram. See what's popping up um, in your community and explore the city through taste. Um, and get, you'd be surprised by the way that your other senses are triggered. And with that recommendation, we uh, once again thank our guest, Jen Bailey, and we uh, want to wish you the best. Thanks, Dave, for a great conversation. I'll see you in episode six. Thank you, Rick. Thank you.